Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 137. It's been a harrowing few months in Southern Africa, back in 1838. All manner of change was rolling across the felt, worlds colliding, roiling like thunderclouds, seething and churning, and almost allegorical because lightning from real storms had already killed Boer horses and Zulu warriors in separate incidents as they fought each other. When the settlers in the Cape heard about Petrotif's fate, followed shortly afterwards by news of the massacres of hundreds of foot-trekkers along the Blokrans and Bushman's rivers, many nodded knowingly. The stories of the Amazulu military prowess had circulated for decades, Shaka first, then Dingan. Many of the Cape citizens had feared for the foot-trekkers, and now their fate seemed to be sealed. The Karpanars said the foot-trekkers had been warned, but they thought of themselves as immune, protected by God, deterministically predisposed to rule supreme over their fellow black man. Viennan had sent shockwaves of existentialism through the Furtricker consciousness. One of the missionaries back in the Cape who nodded most knowingly was a man of God, Dr. John Philip. He had predicted that the emigration of the Boers into the hinterland of southern Africa would lead to tumult. He saw the foot-trekkers as men and women determined to restore racial inequality and proper relations between masters and servants that he had sought to eradicate from the Cape Colony's laws himself and its society. He had warned anyone who had listened that this would drive the African chiefs to extreme acts in response if they were dealt with as anything less than equals. The retributive hand of God, he said sanctimoniously, is visible in all of this. That he said this at the news of Retief's murder was callous, to say the least. It was an ominous event, he continued, that forecast the future of the north and south of the colony. Dr. Philip thought the answer to all this chaos, and something he'd already presented as an answer in London before the Aborigines Committee, was for the British to take control of Africa all the way up to the tropics, thus making the interests of the natives the grand policy of our conduct. That was a terrifying and expensive concept for the English political class, despite the idea these days that the British Empire always secretly desired the whole of Africa. That is tautological, because the English were definitely not in favour of taking control of southern Africa in the 1830s. The scramble would only gather momentum later in the 19th century. It was only then that the London financiers would begin to lust after diamonds and gold, and the folks we jocularly refer to as jingo imperialists got on their high horses. At this point, Cape Town cost the British Empire a lot of money. It was subsidised only because it was on a critical route to the real jewel in the crown called India. Dr. Philip's sentiments would be echoed later by people like Cecil John Rhodes, but for different reasons. The latter, of course, motivated by filthy lucre and grand ambition rather than human rights. Before his dismissal, Governor Benjamin Durbin had watched the immigration of the Boers into the distant reaches of Africa with great anxiety, and his successor, Sir George Napier, was even more nervous. Durbin had tried to control the trekkers and failed, and Napier could do very little. It was the one-armed Sir George who really inherited the problem. As news of these clashes with the Amandebele and Amazulu, then the information about massacres reached the colony, all their fears appeared to have been confirmed. By the way, 
Durban lived in the Cape after being replaced by Napier. It's a lovely place to live, after all, and he remained there as a private resident. Eventually, he left Cape Town in 1846 to become Commander-in-Chief of the British forces in North America and died in the Canadian city of Montreal in 1849. An immense year this, 1838. Queen Victoria of Britain was crowned at Westminster Abbey in London, and Dingana had referred to the new queen in his comments to the missionaries before he killed Retief. Alfred Vale and Samuel Morse made the first successful demonstration of the electric telegraph in front of the world, and Morse code was launched, which is still in use today. In April 1838, in the United Kingdom, the principle of the People's Charter was drawn up, a charter which called for universal suffrage for the right of women to vote. It would be a century before that happened. Meanwhile, as these technical and social innovations were being cooked up, at Durenkop and Modelager below the brooding Drakensberg, the foot-trekkers were aching for revenge. By now, Andries Hendrik Potgieter had arrived with his posse, joining Piet Ace and his smaller group, and they contacted the English traders in Durban with a view to conduct a coordinated attack on Dingan along two fronts. The first would be by the trekkers from the northwest, the other by the English settlers from Durban further south. Potgieter and Ace, along with the nominal leader of the foot-trekkers, Gertmeritz, knew that it was essential the English settlers coordinate their advance, or they'd probably not be able to overcome Dingan. But both sides were overestimating their power and forgetting their strength. They didn't do their SWOT analysis. They allowed a growing hatred of the Amazulu to cloud their thinking. The truth is, people who are outraged are not very clever and easy to trick. Ultimately, it was decided that the Boers should move out on April 5th, and 347 men were to ride in two divisions, with division a symbolic description of this force. They were quite divided, and were not going to act in concert in the coming fight. The source material is a little hazy about the actual number who rode off seeking justice for the massacres and Retief's death. Some say the number was 400, but W.G. Nell in the Peter Maransberg archives says it was more like 300, although most say it was definitely 347. So... One section was commanded by Piet Ace, and the other by Andries Hendrik Potita, and you know by now they didn't get along. The English force was to head off from Durban independently, and they were going to strike straight at the nearest Zulu homesteads across the Tugela River. Perhaps a more thoughtful approach would have saved both armies, but experts who analysed the coming events are in agreement. Nothing would have saved them. The fighting Boers gathered at Potita's Modelager, and Ace was nominated as the Commandant General, but he was told by the Volksrat to take orders from the General Potita. Twenty Boers, each with their own Achtere or Khoisan or Coloured Man, were to manage the horses. Moritz remained behind. He was too ill to join this revenge commando. There was a further delay as things were not quite ready. Eventually, on the 6th of April, the commando rode off east, heading towards Mguvlovu. Potita led about 200 men. Ace around 147. The unusual aspect about this army was that the Fuertrekkers had decided to leave their wagons behind in favour of mobility. This had worked against the Amandebeli, thought both Potita and Ace, but this meant their horses were now heavily laden with ammunition, gunpowder, food and other supplies. They were also unable to defend themselves on the wide open spaces of South Africa's felt. Each man had two horses at least, but that didn't make up for the loss of their major defensive weapon, their lager. They intended to move as rapidly as possible and surprise the Amazulu. They were also misguided about that. 
Their every movement was under scrutiny virtually as they rode out of Mordelaga. Dingana had a huge network of spies, and he was not going to make the mistake that Mzilikazi had made. Despite the Voortrekkers being so heavily defeated, despite Retief and his men being overcome, Dingana was still very afraid of the Boers. He respected them. Mzilikazi had learned to his cost what happened if you turned your back on the Voortrekkers. Dingana adopted a kind of scorched-earth policy now, ordering his Indunas to drive away all the cattle from the Umises in Ace and Portita's path. The empty felt should have been a warning that the Amazulu were prepared and ready. The Boers, however, read the situation as people running away in fear. They had actually moved away in preparation. The Zulu reconnaissance runners kept the king appraised of every move the commander made, and soon it was apparent that Ace and Portita were heading towards the rugged and precipitous land on the upper Tugela. From there, they turned directly towards Mkunglovu. On April 10th, the commander arrived on the western side of the Imzanyati, the Buffalo River, at the source of the Amplatuzi River, and close to a hill called Etaleni, near Babanongo, east of Rourke's Drift. Soon, they reached the conical hill known as Katazo Kop, and from its flat top they could see far away in the distance the faint outline of Mgunglovu in a north-north-easterly direction. The route down to the Mkosini Valley lay before them, down to the Nzololo River. The advancing commando then caught sight of a herd of cattle being driven some distance away out of their reach. The bait for the trap. The herd was moving through a long narrow neck between two hills, and further along the Boers could see the territory expanded into a rocky basin. That seemed to be pitted with dongas and deep craggy seams. Immediately, red flags should have gone up. There was something wrong with this scene, but the commander's survivors only put two and two together later. At this moment, their blood was up. They had spent four days trotting through the landscape, bereft of animals and people, storytelling around the fires, convincing each other that revenge was nigh. Here were Dingana's cattle ripe for the picking, and they were drawn into this cul-de-sac, on the rocky basin, exactly as the Zulu king had ordered. The main force of Zulu were west of Ungungunglovu, and Dingana had placed Nzobo himself in charge of the 7,000 soldiers. They were made up of the Mkuluchani and Iguluchani, the younger warriors that Dingana had only just enrolled in 1833. He also called on the Mvokwe Amabuta, another large unmarried group of men, and they were led by Mjobo Kabungu and Nduvana Kankobe. Nzobo was aware of the Boers' tactics. He had been present when the English traders had fought alongside the Zulu against Amaswazi, and he had watched extremely closely as Petra Tief had shown off his men's riding and shooting skills. So he had decided that victory lay in the path taken by a commander who could surprise the Boers while breaking up their joint firepower. The Boers had not sent anyone ahead to properly assess the dangers. The scouting parties were nervous of being picked off by the roaming Zulu warriors. Picture the scene. As the Boers approached this neck between two hills, they saw that the hill on the left was insurmountable at its summit for men on horseback, while the hillock on the right was more gently sloping. The hill on the left had a stream at its base, and behind this steep hill the second part of the Zulu army sat waiting for their prey. They were unseen at this point. The land behind the hill and around the stream was marshy, a wetland further impeding any horsemen, and the grass grew thick and high. As the ground dried out further beyond the stream, a series of deeply eroded gullies pockmarked the landscape. The Boers were now in a precarious position, but at first they were not aware of what was going on. 
The men were riding into this area in a long single defile, a single line, and as they rounded the saddle, the leaders spotted the two Zulu armies. One slightly to the right on the slopes of the gentle hill, and the other on the left close to the grassy spread. Ace and Portkita hastily conferred. They each felt they should command their own men. This, in conjunction with the decision to keep riding into a blind spot, was their second mistake. It was decided, say the scribes, that Ace would launch a frontal attack over open ground on the Zulu right, the section behind the hill, while Portkita would attack the Zulu on their left. Neither Ace nor Portkita discussed any support for each other. They did not talk about coming to assist should either commander run into trouble. They also failed to really understand the ground over which the battle was going to be fought. Ace, in effect, was asking his men to ride uphill towards the Zulu, while Portkita was going to be focused on the other less steep slope. That meant the Boer commanders were going to be fighting with their backs to each other. If they were closer together, this would have been a smarter move, but they were strung out, far apart, each becoming more invisible to the other. Both sets of horses were going to find this very difficult terrain as well. So Ace said he'd move first to drive the Zulu off the hill, then he'd turn and support Putita. They'd clear the hills, then move into the basin, and then take Mkungulovu. With that, Ace galloped up the hill, driving his men straight into the Zulu, not aware that two-thirds of the enemy were out of sight, still sitting on their haunches in the thick grass. His galloping division thundered up the hill as Portkita's men cantered more cautiously towards the warriors on the flatter slope, inspecting every donga as they drew closer to their foe, glancing into each bushy area they passed. Ace had told his men to advance to within 50 yards of the Zulu, then dismount and to fire at will. Then they ran towards the Zulu section with smoking muskets, reloading as they sprinted, and it was then that all 3,000 warriors stood up. The first volley confused the warriors, and Ace shouted, Stand in your tracks and aim straight. As the Indunas cajoled their men, Ace shouted again, Give them your slugs, which were the bags of shot, twelve or fifteen little metal balls in each. These caused wide-ranging casualties when fired at ranks of men. One of Ace's men, by the name of Peter Nell, spotted an Induna and picked him off as the man gestured towards his warriors. The rest of the Amabuta appeared to flee, and some of Ace's men leapt back on their horses to follow. Zulu oral tradition says these warriors were not retreating, merely luring the Boers further into a trap, which is hard to believe because the first fusillades by the Boers actually caused quite heavy casualties. However, whatever is true, it was what happened next that really matters. The terrain proved to be the Boers' undoing. As they galloped, and a few sprinted towards the retreating foe, they broke up into smaller groups, dodging the dongas, into the little ravines and the bushes, over the embankments as they hurtled after the warriors. Portkita now lost sight of Ace's men, and Ace's men lost sight of each other. The Milan brothers, for example, who were on foot, had found themselves cut off, and there was an attempt made to reach them. What the Boers did not know was that Nzobo had an Ace up his sleeve. He had posted a third group of Zulu warriors, a few hundred in number, further back inside a millie field, who were watching the goings-on, they had not retreated, and they had been lying obscured by the thick grass near the spreit. Pete Ace suddenly spotted the danger of this bunch of reinforcements and realized their predicament. He asked for volunteers to ride with him to the Boers who were already ahead in the broken ground. Thirteen men joined him, 
and his 15-year-old son, Durki. The rest refused, saying it was too risky. They had ridden into a trap and needed to retreat. Ace and his small party rode down the northern side of the hill, leaving most of the men behind under Feldkornet Koos Grootfoot, Potkita's command, not to be confused with Andris Potkita. The Zulu, lying in wait, rose and flung their throwing spears, the Isidrula, together. A loud whirring noise could be heard. Ace was cut off and turned south through the port into the valley beyond. It was then that Piet Ace was hit in the back. The Isidrula flung with such force and accuracy that the point jutted out his front. He pulled out the spear and saw that another group of warriors had closed the path between his riders and Bigfoot's men, Grootfoot Botita. Ace struggled with his surviving men onto the flatland, swerving past boulders and bushes on the valley floor, but he'd received a mortal wound. The spear had pierced his kidneys. He was bleeding to death. As he swayed in the saddle, his men were picked off around him one by one. Portkita had very little idea that Ace had ridden into a death trap. He was leading his men towards the other Zulu section when, for some reason, and to this day no one has been able to explain this properly, he ordered his men to stop advancing and then to withdraw. Some of the commander protested openly, saying they were supposed to work in tandem with Ace, and a few disobeyed his order continuing up the slope, but even they turned back. And for this, Portkita was later castigated as a coward which is a bit of an insult considering how well he'd fought the Amandebeli. But I suppose you're only as good as your last rodeo. On the other side, the other hill, Grootfoot Potgieter, his namesake, had seen the difficulty that Ace was in and also did nothing. What could they do? They'd been outflanked and outfought. Andries Hendrik Potgieter was not a fool. His heart did not lie in Natal. He had set his mind on living on the Highveld. He was just here to support the Voortrekkers in their quest for justice against Dingana. Why would he commit his men when the game was up? It just so happens that his tactical retreat was a disaster, and the Amazulu were watching him closely. As his men turned, the Zulu immediately responded to their weakness and charged towards him with a yell and rattling of shields. As Portkita's men galloped away from the battlefield towards the drift across the Mplatuzi River, felt Cornet Karl Landmann said he would remain behind and cover the retreat. A highly experienced soldier and prosperous farmer from Jutenhag, he'd fought in at least two Amakosa frontier wars. One of Dingan's and Dunas rode up behind Portita, leading his men on Petritif's horse, and Lundman took careful aim and shot down the Zulu commander. The other warriors chasing Portita then turned back. Meanwhile, Ace's elder brother, Jakubus, and forty men had been guarding the sixty pack horses and the spare riding horses at the spot Pete Ace had launched his foolhardy mercy mission. Now Jokobus and his crew had to flee for their lives, leaving all the horses, the spare ammunition, the powder and the food behind. Grootfoot Potkita was also in big trouble. His party of Boers were surrounded, and the Amazulu turned to focus on him and the bleeding Ace. Grootfoot headed towards the Nzololo stream alongside Pete Ace, but he was fainting and slumping off his horse. He was now stuck on the eastern side of the stream with his son Durki and the other Boers on the west. So Pete and Durki rode straight into a section of Amazulu warriors who held a rocky ridge on their way. With the son helping the father to stay upright in his saddle, shortly afterwards both were speared to death. Jakubus Koos Grootfoot and the rest of Ace's men were still surrounded. They focused their fire on the warriors gathered to the south of their position and blasted a gap, then galloped through into the valley, 
dismounting, firing, mounting their horses, riding onwards, dismounting, firing, and so on. By now the Amazulu knew they were all heading to the Umplatuzi and guarded the drift there, but Grootfoot's men charged towards the river, shooting down the warriors in their way. Eventually, they all managed to join up with Hendrik Porchita on the plateau beyond, but like a bad nightmare, the fighting did not end. The Amazulu were extremely well trained and exceptionally fit. They chased this group of Boers on foot for two hours, harrying them, throwing their spears, trying to outflank the riders as they fought their way along the side of a flat-topped mountain called Etaleni. Thus, this was named the Battle of Etaleni by the Amazulu, a running battle of 30 kilometers from the double hills alongside the valley of the Nzololo River to the western reaches of Tala Mountain. Eventually the pursuers turned back. Eight Boers were dead, including Piet Ace and his son Durki. Dozens of men were wounded. All the pack horses were gone, all the material. It's believed that the Zulu lost close to 500 men. The fighting was so intense. Once again the Amazulu had prevailed against the Boers in the open, but once again the more astute Indunas took note of the one-sided casualty figure. Yes, they'd chased off the enemy, but at what cost? Hundreds of warriors were dead. Still, it was a victory. Zulu morale was boosted. Dingaan and his Izigodlo protected. The magic and mysticism of his rule reinforced. The poor trickers, on the other hand, were stunned. To say the people back at the Moda Lager were shocked by this turn of events is an understatement. Their heroes, Ace and Pochita, the men who defeated Mzilikazi, defeated in turn. They were defeated fair and square. This wasn't like the massacres along the Bushman's River. They marched into a battle and then ran from the field. When the commander rode back into Moda Lager on the 12th of April, Predikant Erasmus Smith was beside himself. Hot, hot, help, 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 he intoned. The hard rain continued to fall. The trekkers merged wagons of four different camps into one huge protected lager concentrated at the western foot of Durnkop, hunkering down in fear of the Amazulu reappearing. The survivors considered their position, then turned their anger on Porchita. The commander was renamed the Flich commander, the flight commander, or the retreat commander, if you like. Piet Ace was almost deified in death, and his son Derki even more so. The story went that when his father slumped one final time, Derki had shaken off the suggestion that he should flee and said he wanted to join his father, saying in Dutch, Ik zal bij mijn vader sterven. Listening to all of this was Porchita, and he was now being called a coward to his face by the trekkers. He defended his action, warned everyone that the Amazulu would probably not be defeated, and then took his followers back over the Drakensberg in a huff. This meant up to a hundred men left Modelaga. As he rode off, Porchita was already planning his new republic on the Haarfeld, leaving behind the terrible memories. Right now, the trekkers at Modelaga had two options, leave or defeat Dingan. They were going to try to do the impossible. They were determined to defeat the Zulu king. But they had learned their bloody lesson. In the future, they would do this on their own terms. Dingaan was extremely happy with how this battle had turned out. Now that he had dealt with the troublesome Boers, he turned his baleful glare onto the traders in Durban, Aka, Port Natal. A week after that ambushed the commander at Etaleni, 
Dinga and his half-brother, Mpande Ka Senzangakona, were sent with a large impi to teach the English a lesson. And the traders had taken the fatal decision to follow up their raid on Ntumjambili at the end of March 1838. They were now going to commit their grand army of Natal to another round of Amazulu fighting. And they were going to pay dearly for that uprising. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. I'm trying to renew my website, desmondlatham.blog, so head off there. You can contact me through the email link on that site or through x at deslatham. Until next, salagatli.